Hello listeners and welcome to the AfriWet podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes, which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in, as today we're headed to East Africa for part two of the Karagwe Kingdom. A shout out to my East Africans out there, Afriwetu is back on your borders. Before we begin, a quick note, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu, where we post interesting facts, stories, updates, and links for further study for all you lovely people. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. So, as usual, before we get started, let's get right into our maps, yes? Just to see where we are on our beautiful continent today. So, first thing to note is Karagwe is still today in existence as part of modern-day Tanzania. So, it'll be easy to visualize with that in mind, as the ancient kingdom was in the same locale. It sat across within the interlocustrian of Eastern Africa, spanning over the borders of Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, and Africa's largest lake, which is known by a few names, as I said last time, and today we shall use Lake Nyanza. Karagwe also had other water bodies as borders, such as lakes Burigi, Rushwa, and Nweru, as well as River Kagera to its southeast, west, and northwest, respectively. And to the east, it also bordered the kingdoms of Kiziba, to the northwest, Mpororo and Nkole. So, before we head into the core of part two, let's have a very brief recap of part one. Like, just a little minute for those who haven't yet listened in, right? So, last time we covered a bit of context to establish the titles and descriptors such as the fact that for Afriwet we shall use, we shall refer to the rule and the king as Omugabe, because that is one of the titles used for them. We also met the kingdom's own ancestors and origins, understanding that the ruling dynasty were not originally from the region, but came from the previous powerful empires like Chitara and Bunyoro Chitara. And then this linked to the key migrations, the two key migrations from the southern parts of the continent in the first instance, and then the second migration from the north, who were the descendants of the first group who went back down and settled in Caragüe, equals confusing. I promise, listen to part one, it will make sense. We also met the rulers by way of understanding their roles and how it was meshed with the mystery of smithing, which was also part of the religious beliefs and practices. And that was it really. So now we are all at the same fireside. Let's head over and meet the kingdom's society. So Karagwe society was 
pretty stratified and this hierarchical system was enhanced by the clan culture with the different types of clan activities, especially when we look at the interplay between the two most prominent communities, that of the Abahima and the Abanyambo. So Caragua's people in the main were the Abanyambo or the Banyambo and the kingdom society was patrilineal. It had a clan structure that differentiated between what some call, I've seen, soft and hard clans. And it was exogamous, which is basically a fancy word that meant that they married outside of their clans. In the research, which was what was classed as the difference between the soft and hard clans was the ritual knowledge of Kamukweda the most sacred ways of the ironworking process. This knowledge was passed down from one generation to the next and it was kept almost secret to non-clan members. And this was one of the ways in which these clans were able to retain power, respect and influence within society. The clan structure permeated throughout all parts of society, from the more general public to the nobles, each having specific roles within society. Let's take a, a look at a few of them to illustrate this, with a focus on how they related to the noble houses. So we'll start with the Abarigi Wasgaba clan, who were within the Abanyambo. So they were assigned a special role within the royal court of ensuring that the royal fire never went out. This particular fire was housed in Kagondo and was one of the key royal symbols. So it was no small task to keep a fire going, literally forever. Another clan who got the attention of Afriwetu and worth mentioning, really for fun, was out of all the royal services there were the very 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 important royal brewers the batundu personally that just sounds like a fun clan you would be invited to every single celebration and at least well that's what i've decided and every single party and everybody just loved you and basically that was just a fun fact that had to be shared then you had what were the hard clans. So if you think of the ones before we've just spoken about as the soft clans, the hard clans who included the royal burial clan, the Honga. They held the duty of preparation and oversight of how the body of the deceased, Omugabe, was transformed into a guardian of Karagwe in the shape of a lion. Yep, a Simba. This king of the savannah was then said to be a friend of the kings of all of Karagwe. And then still with the hard clans, we then have the Sindhi clan. They were other level as they lay claim to all aspects of iron making. They officiated over royal ceremonies and in one of the key ceremonies, i.e. the coronation of a new king, as we heard in part one, they and the new Omugabe would beat the Nyabataba, the royal drum. Which, by the way, they were also keepers of the royal drum. This action, the beating of the drum, would then signal to the kingdom that there was a new and accepted Omugabe. So they were hardcore, really. And then whilst we're on drums, there was another clan associated with the royal drum, the Abakaraza. In addition to this, they were also the keepers of the royal regalia and the instruments, which they then translated into a linked duty to the Omugabe. So basically, once he was crowned, it was they 
who not just dressed him, they would also train him on how to use the royal artifacts as part of his ritual duties during important ceremonies. So we have spoken a lot about them. So our classification on the list of the Bahinda Bahima are the royal ruling clan. We heard a lot about them in the first part and we'll hear a lot about them as well here. So the Bahima were mainly pastoralists and practiced animal husbandry, which is basically the breeding and maintenance of livestock. A person's status was reflected by their name, but they were really all part of the ability. This was in contrast with the Abanyambo, who are mostly agriculturalists and farmers, and they were considered to be the closest to the indigenous people in the area. The Bahima, who were, well, maybe not now, but then foreigners. Despite the social strata, there were no strict rules against intermarriage between the two, but it also wasn't really encouraged, to be honest. In such instances, when this type of marriage did happen, then the family of the Banyambo would, by the virtue of this love match, have their own social status elevated. Karagwe society, regardless of the clan, had a healthy respect for education and training. Attitudes and social interactions, for example, how you carried yourself in society, and another good one is how you treated elders, which is called the practice of omutima where one had to show deference to the elders, was a biggie. With children, their training included concepts linked to respect and okuhurira, which is obedience. Actually, like in many cultures, well, many African cultures, ultimately children were meant to be seen, not so much heard. I'm sure I can feel a few Afriwatus nodding their heads. That sounds very familiar. In addition to the training, there was also training given on one, how one addressed nobility. And this is to everybody, not just children. Making sure that everyone understood the hierarchical structures. So, for example, the idea of amakune, which was respect for rank. This extended to military and administrative structures, where young men would be trained in these public offices and those who excelled were rewarded with leadership positions. And guess what? This nicely leads us to the governance section. So we met the rulers in part one, and we've just met the people. So next is, how did these two interact when it came to governance? Let's take a look right now. So the emergence of how the kingdom came to be ruled is probably a good starting point, don't you think? So here goes. The system of governance was built on practices that could be traced way back and had been in formation over a long period of time, beyond the start of the kingdom as we know it today. It started much like many civilizations with small family units, which in time grew to accommodate larger and growing families. These units then started to cluster themselves into clans, and as they became larger and more complex society, they expanded into what became the beginning of our kingdom. In the course of this expansion of communities and territory, the expected happened. Communities and clans were pitted against each other with allegiances formed and used to gain influence and power over the other or others. Then you had those who came from afar getting into the mix. Out of these interactions, what we then got was a politically astute, strongest group taking charge in Karagwe. 
These were, according to the descendants and popular belief, in fact, we met them very briefly in part one, the Basita dynasty. It is claimed that the Basita hailed from the ancient Chitara Empire when it was under the Bachwezi rule. From this empire, they left with the knowledge of statehood and governance, which they then came to apply on the conquered land of Caragüe. They were successful in this rule and it was only from an equally knowledgeable power that came in the form of Ruhinda that they were unseated. He came down from the same origins and overthrew Nono, who was known to be the last of the Basita rulers. We're together, yes? So, this kingdom was run as a centralized government with the ruler, the Omugabe, reigning as an overall monarch. He was believed to not only have your normal tools of governance and power, but also, ooh, some magical powers. His admin powers are based off the hierarchical system of the kingdom and were supported by the clan system. And this included control over the all-important asset that was iron. This control was manifested in different ways, from his smithing skills and ability to manipulate the metal, to iron's own value as a commodity in the kingdom's trade, and also his control over the source, the iron mines. On the next level down, to help or hinder the kingdom, it was split into territories. And each of these territories were led by a chief who was appointed by the ruler. Interesting fact to throw in here, in later years, the kingdom had designated chiefdoms that were only to be held by women. And this is such a dope thing, because if you recall, this was a very patriarchal society, right? But here's the thing. In real terms, women were respected and considered very powerful beings with their only equals, get this, being iron smelting. Just take that in for a minute. Smelting was such an integral part of Caragüe, and here women are seeing as this being the only thing to match their power. Let that sink in. Then this intersection of the two went even further. Women, get this, were considered a threat to the iron smelting process. It is believed the reason for this is because of our innate power. And when it came to governance, it has been proposed that this was the reason why key chieftainships were held specifically by women, ones which were in the iron smelting areas. Because by having a woman in direct control over the furnaces, she reported to the overall ruler. That means that in turn, he would be able to control these areas because of, once again, our innate power. Now, I want to move to the next section, trade and economy, before we wrap up this episode with the demise. Caragüe had a number of sources of wealth and a diverse economy. We've already heard about the agriculture, the ironworking, the livestock, but the other key part was the part it played as a trading kingdom in the, in the region, something we shall explore in a bit. First, let's quickly summarize the other ingredients and going alphabetically, let's start with agriculture. Agriculture played a huge part in the kingdom's local economy. The agricultural practices started off as being small scale and within villages, in time growing to more commercial usage. The kingdom over the years was able to harness the advantage of its crops, most notably sorghum, millet and yams. These crops were consumed both locally and exported as whole or as grains. 
And the preparation for all of this was in, within the kingdom's boundaries. Next up, we have iron. The control of iron production was a power move, and the ruler used his position to exert overall control. This production was an exclusive club for noblemen from particular clans, which by definition meant it excluded women and specific clans. Iron working was geographical, and the iron clans tended to own the land where the smelting happened. Fun fact time. Linked to the smelting and some of the symbolism and rituals, the whole process of metallurgy was more than just the act. It was extended and given its own personality. What I mean is, every part of the process involved what was allocated to a gender, male or female. The bellows were representative of males and the furnaces of females. For the latter, this is a very conscious thing as it was decorated as such to portray parts of the female body and also thought to evoke fertility. This then combined with the bellows makes, made smelting symbolically akin to procreation as we've mentioned before. This practice was said to have begun during Rumanyinka's reign in the mid-19th century. When we link this and agriculture farming, Iron technology elevated the tools of the trade, which meant more efficient and effective ways of cultivation, as well as dealing with livestock. A lot of this advancement was attributed to the northern settlers in the region. So when you look at livestock, going back to the farmlands, the other pride of the people was a huge number of the heads of cattle that they kept. Animal husbandry was big, like big, big, with big and big cattle herds, which were a measure of one's wealth, social capital, influence, and power. Animal husbandry slash livestock keeping was a practice said to have been introduced by the northern settlers, the Bahima and the Basita dynasties. Moving from the local economy to the international trade of the kingdom, from the 18th century, trade was booming as access from the interior to the coast became a lot easier and therefore more frequent. For, for Caragüe, the first thing to note is that her location was rather advantageous, being as Caragüe was sat in the crossroads of lucrative and active trade routes. These routes were used from those further in the interior of what is modern-day Uganda and the kingdoms and civilizations it had there, a key one being the Buganda Kingdom. Caragüe was a major hub and trading center for them. The other thing Caragüe offered was a more, shall we say, foreign-friendly passage, being more accommodating for traders as opposed to the other options through Usukuma or Buzinza that were not as friendly to the visitors. Caragüe provided good access to the favored caravan routes, which were controlled and dominated by the Nyamwezi traders, who traded in almost everything specializing in ivory and in later years indentured people. After we had to cover the Nyamwezi in series one, episode 17, so please go check it out. This Unyambembe Karagwe route was quite lucrative and was used by those trading civilizations and the peoples from the Tabora region. This particular route attracted the salt merchants from Usumbwa and Uvinza, the copper traders from Katanga, and in much later years, the Arabs from the coastline who made their way to the interior of the continent just to name a few. Caragua was also best placed when it came to housing the foreigner Arabs who had been banned from entering neighboring powerful kingdoms of Buganda, Bunyoro, and 
and Ankole and Onkale for a time. The Arabs were allowed to set up base in Karagwe and send emissaries who were Africans to trade on their behalf with these powerhouses. So the kingdom received, hosted, and traded with merchants from the interior, the coast, foreigners, and had all manner of goods and services, including fruits and veg, millet, etc., on top of those mentioned earlier, passing through its borders. It was all looking great. this kingdom that was flourishing come to an end? Well, it's the age-old story of infighting between the royal lineages. These succession issues really seriously weakened the systems. And once this took hold in Karagwe, the problems at the top then spread to affect the entire kingdom. Afriwatu, where there is fighting, corrupt and selfish leadership, the grass suffers and nobody wins. This high-level conflict saw actual fighting, battles, and a civil war which plagued the kingdom, leading to great losses of life, and the people left. So it became a shell of itself with the dwindled population. And then on top of all of this, there was a further period of loss of humans and livestock, key to the kingdom's health and wealth through epidemics for livestock it was ravaged by the rinderpest outbreak and for humans smallpox and as all of this is going on to make matters worse there was a ruler of Karagwe who it was said was not well loved and some claimed to be a bit of a tyrant so what happens in soup the German colonizers who took advantage of this internal division stuck their noses in and got involved in the kingdom's politics. And in doing so, created a parallel power base whilst wriggling their way in to get a real foothold in the region. By the time the last ruler, Ntare VII, had been murdered through a kangaroo court and trial in 1915 by the colonizers, all was lost as this corrupt and twisted colonial plot with their allies became a sad tale of how once this once flourishing kingdom became a pawn. Karagwe had all but lost her power, influence, and independence, having become part of the Bukoba residency. Unlike other kingdoms in the Interlocustrian who were able to hold on to their identity, Karagwe didn't. So what else was going on in the world um, before we get to bringing it home? So in, between 1868 and 1869 was the Boshin War, which resulted in the end of the shogunate and the founding of the Japanese Empire. 1899 to 1902, the Philippine-American War began. 1890 was the first use of the electric chair as a method of execution in the United States. This method of execution was conceptualized by a dentist called Mr. Southwick, who was based in New York. And in 1898, the Spanish-American War results in the independence of 
Cuba. This was such a great kingdom to uncover and immerse into. And although there are many things that I could personally select, I want to just pick one, the cool facts around women and iron smelting, how much power we have that women are a threat to it. This actually extended to the Smiths themselves in that they were not to have relations with women before or during the process because it would take a long time. And in this very patriarchal society that revered the authority and the mystery evoked by the mastery of ironworking. <clears throat> Dope, right? Anyway, this kingdom is typical of the complex history of our ancestors. It is not linear, nor always simple to understand nor explain. And that is a real flavor of our stories. It is truly one of the more involved kingdoms as there were so so many pieces scattered around to pick into this very very high level summary that were these two parts two part episode this two part episode i hope that this really has sparked a flame i urge you please go and do your own deeper research it will be so worth it and until next time mubarakiwe